Hello, my name's Mike. I'm the pastor at Watch It Baptist Church. You're watching Watch It Baptist Church online. And you're either watching us on YouTube or you're listening to us on a podcast through whatever platform it is that you use. You're very welcome with us to look again at our series. This is part seven, looking at the signs in the book of John, in the Gospel of John. John's account of Jesus' life and its significance. John places miracles at uh, very irregular intervals through the first few chapters of his gospel. And he doesn't call them miracles, he calls them signs. And he does this because he wants us to recognise what they signify, what they tell us, what they mean, the way in which a message is told through them. Now, John is quite single-minded in his gospel. He wants to really drive home two things. One is uh, questions about belief, and the other is questions about Jesus' identity. In some ways, we see the same kind of theme and drive repeated through John's gospel, but there are lots of different things that John is trying to point us towards, or lots of different ways in which he tries to show us where he thinks we need to look. So we're looking at the seventh of those. It's the raising of Lazarus. You find it in John chapter 11. And so we're going to read quite a lot of that chapter in just a moment. But we're going to pray before we go any further. Lord Jesus, we thank you that in your time on earth, in your ministry, uh, in person, that you provided these miracles that had meaning behind them. And we thank you that John identified these and shared them with us. Would you keep our hearts open as we look at this one, that we might understand more deeply, not just so that we would know things, but so that we could be closer to you and that we might continue to be transformed into the people you know we could become as we follow you. Amen. Right, so I'm reading from the New Living Translation, the NLT. Uh, I'm going to start at verse one. I'm going to read all the way through to verse 44. So bear with me. If you would like to watch along, uh, the words will be on the screen. If you just want to close your eyes and listen, that's okay. If you have an NLT Bible of your own that you want to follow in, that's okay. And if you want to follow in a different version just to see how different translators uh, show us different things, then please feel free to do that too. So let's go. A man named Lazarus was sick. He lived in Bethany with his sisters, Mary and Martha. This is the Mary who later poured the expensive perfume on the Lord's feet and wiped them with her hair. Her brother Lazarus was sick, so the two sisters sent a message to Jesus, telling him, Lord, your dear friend is very sick. But when Jesus heard about it, he said, Lazarus's sickness will not end in death. No, it happened for the glory of God, so that the Son of God will receive glory from this. So although Jesus loved Martha, Mary and Lazarus, he stayed where he was for the next two days. And finally, he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. But his disciples objected. Rabbi, they said, only a few days ago, the people in Judea were trying to stone you. Are you going to go there again? Jesus replied, there are 12 hours of daylight every day. During the day, people can walk safely. They can see because they have the light of this world. But at night, there is danger of stumbling because they have no light. Then he said, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, 
but now I will go and wake him up. The disciples said, Lord, if he's sleeping, he will soon get better. They thought Jesus meant Lazarus was simply sleeping, but Jesus meant Lazarus had died. So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sakes, I'm glad I wasn't there, for now you will really believe. Come, let's go see him. Thomas, nicknamed the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let's go too and die with Jesus. When Jesus arrived at Bethany, he was told that Lazarus had already been in the grave for four days. Bethany was only a few miles down the road from Jerusalem, and many of the people had come to console Martha and Mary in their loss. When Martha got word that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him, but Mary stayed in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if only you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus told her, your brother will rise again. Yes, Martha said, he will rise when everyone else rises at the last day. Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this, Martha? Yes, Lord, she told him. I have always believed you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who has come into the world from God. Then she returned to Mary. She called Mary aside from the mourners and told her, the teacher is here and wants to see you. So Mary immediately went to him. Jesus had stayed outside the village at the place where Martha met him. When the people who were at the house consoling Mary saw her leave so hastily, they assumed she was going to Lazarus's grave to weep, so they followed her there. When Mary arrived and saw Jesus, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people with her, a deep anger welled up within him and he was deeply troubled. Where have you put him? he asked. They told him, Lord, come and see. Then Jesus wept. The people who were standing nearby said, see how much he loved him. But some said, this man healed a blind man. Couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? Jesus was still angry as he arrived at the tomb, the cave with a stone rolled across its entrance. Roll the stone aside, Jesus told them. But Martha, the dead man's sister, protested, Lord, he has been dead for four days. The smell will be terrible. Jesus responded, didn't I tell you that you would see God's glory if you believe? So they rolled the stone aside. Then Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, thank you for hearing me. You always hear me, but I said it out loud for the sake of the people standing here so that they will believe you sent me. Then Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet bound in grave clothes, his face wrapped in a headcloth. Jesus told them, unwrap him and let him go. It has been a long passage to read, but you can see that there is a whole story there to be told. And to be fair, the repercussions of that story will run on from this point. In some ways, that's the end of kind of 
everything else that happens in the gospel. And then we have Jesus arriving in Jerusalem. And John spends some time taking us from chapter 12 through to chapter 19 to tell us the whole story of the last conversation Jesus has with his disciples around that meal table, uh, about his arrest and trial, uh, and then about his crucifixion and his resurrection too. So there are 21 chapters in John, and here we are at John 11, and, and everything that follows this is kind of in the last few days of his life. Let's have a look, as we always do, at some context here. This is, as we've said many times before, John's gospel, and so it has this um, theme that runs through it of identity, Jesus' identity, and also of belief. And the signs that we hear about that John tells us about um, act as kind of punctuation marks or as anchor points on the way through. And we get a sense of what uh, Jesus is doing by recognising what those signs are saying. It's also important to realise that in chapter 10, we've just had uh, a dialogue, I suppose, is a polite way of putting it, uh, maybe a, a disagreement or an argument about Jesus' identity. It's conflict with those Pharisees again. And Jesus says himself in chapter 10, verse 25, that the um, things that he does are evidence that he is from God. So he basically says, you know I'm from God because the things I do I couldn't do if God weren't with me. The Father is with me, my Father has sent me, things like that. Uh, but it's the work I do that is the Father's work and that's why this makes sense. So let's have a look at some things that we might notice on our way through uh, these verses. Unusually, John gives us a name for the person who's benefiting, he's going to encourage that fly out of the way, uh, the name of somebody's benefiting from the miracle. So when it's the healing of the man born blind and the healing of the man, uh, the paralyzed man uh, by the pool and the people at the wedding at Cana, um, for example, you never get any names. You, you don't get them identified by name. But in this case, you do Lazarus. We are told who he is and the family that he belongs to. It's not, as far as we know, the same Lazarus is, is mentioned in a parable in one of the other Gospels where we get this um, curious story of uh, Lazarus having died um, and, uh, uh, and the, the request that a rich man makes to Abraham, I think it is, uh, to send somebody to warn his family um, that Lazarus has gone to be with God and this rich man hasn't. So you'd be familiar, maybe some of you, with that parable. This, we believe, is a different person. It is just possible that that parable owes something to this story in John, but it's all a little bit uncertain. Uh, right, so next. Jesus announces in verse 11 that he's going to raise Lazarus. So he gives us information in advance of the sign that he's going to do the sign. This, I think, is partly to reassure, but also partly to re-emphasise this idea that the things he does indicates his identity. Next, it's important to notice, I think, that Martha has changed. So this is the same Martha and Mary as we find in Luke 10. Now, that story in Luke 10 where Martha's feeling all busy and, and how she wants to make sure everything's right for her guest, um, Jesus, and for his 
grief of friends and she's trying to prepare a meal and get the house ready uh, while Mary just sits at Jesus' feet. It's the same family involved here. Whereas Martha is, uh, Jesus says, not entirely got her focus right at that point. Here, there's a difference. You'll notice that Martha's response to Jesus arriving late is, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died, but I still know that you can do whatever you choose to do. Mary's response is, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died, but then none of the stuff that follows it. So Martha's, if you like, her understanding of who Jesus is and her understanding of how she might relate to him is different. Her, her faith life, shall we say, has matured. It's, it's gone somewhere since that earlier encounter. Jesus is slow to come. Slow enough that by the time he gets there, Lazarus has been dead four days. Now, it's interesting to think about why he does say we've done it this way so that um, glory might come. But there's also it's also worth noting that the disciples, when Jesus says, let's go to Judea, say that's not a good idea because the last time you were there, they were planning to kill you. So it's interesting to notice that there is a delay and there's more than one reason why there might be a delay. And Jesus has previously said, uh, you know, my time has not yet come or now is not the hour. And, and it almost feels perhaps like Jesus is saying, right, I know this is the point where I now need to go into Jerusalem. Uh, we notice that Bethany is quite close by. Uh, right. So interestingly, in previous miracle signs, healing signs rather, because not all the signs have been healings. In previous healing signs, you have situations like Jesus saying to the man by the pool, get up, take up your mat and go. In the case of the man who was born blind, he wipes the mud on the guy's eyes and sends him away to wash it off for the healing. So you have a sense of when the healing is happening. Uh, and in this case, you really don't know. You don't know at what point Lazarus is, goes from being dead to being alive again. It would seem very much that by the time we get to verse 40, that's already happened. Because at that point, Jesus, at you know, the point where he calls Lazarus out, he's saying, um, thank you, Father, that you have heard me, that you have already answered this prayer. And actually, I'm only saying this prayer out loud so that people understand that it's you that's done this at my request so that they can have confidence that I've come from you. My next point is um, to notice is perhaps a little bit longer to look at. In the New Living Translation, and if you followed in a different Bible, you've spotted this. The New Living Translation and one or two others, it refers to Jesus being angry. Now, the NIV doesn't do that. The NIV refers to him being um, distressed or deeply moved. But having looked into it with some of the commentators, it would seem that angry is the right response. So it's not just that he feels emotional about the death of a friend, it's that he's angry at the situation that is presented in front of him. And it's worth thinking about why that might be. I think the argument has to be that he can't really be angry that Lazarus has died because he has already indicated well before that, that he knows what's happening here. He says, Lazarus is sleeping and I will wake him up. And then has to say, look, actually what I mean by that is Lazarus has died. 
So that would be the point at which he would mourn, not this point when he arrives at, and possibly has already asked the father to raise Lazarus. So why is he angry? Well, I think probably there is a link with sorrow and grief, but that those things are, are more triggered by how people are responding than they are about Lazarus's situation, because Lazarus's situation is in hand. Commentators suggest that the anger Jesus feels is at the chaos and havoc that comes into the world through sickness and death, but also at the chaos that comes when there's a lack of faith. That Jesus knows what humanity could be like if they really sought the Father, if they really chose the kingdom if they trusted Jesus and followed him. He, he understands how that could be and how far removed from that the life that's actually happening around him really is. Perhaps we feel something similar. We see illness and death and suffering. We see how the world processes those things and the way it handles different kinds of suffering in different ways. Very often, loss of life in faraway places particularly in the two-thirds world, or the, the global south, however you want to describe it, deaths in those situations are not met with the same sense of horror and grief. Um, we, uh, I, I have the BBC News app. It gave me regular updates through the search for those uh, five explorers who lost their lives um, near the Titanic wreck. So I had several updates over the course of the search never had an update about the um, migrant crossing uh, where hundreds of people we think lost their lives even though that was unfolding in a way that media were able to see and be aware of i'm surrounded by the way by the most incredible hovering flies they're bright orange color and they look amazing and they keep catching my eye so if i if you see my eyes flickering it's these incredible things there's, there's patches of sunlight around here that really heighten the colour of them and um, when the sun goes behind a cloud they seem to disappear and the sun comes back out They're, they are looking incredible so apologies if I look a little distracted I promise I'm not it's just very eye-catching so possibly with this thing with anger Jesus is expressing something of his frustration and possibly disappointment but also deep sorrow and compassion so what Jesus always does in situations where he's angry is he's angry because of the compassion. You remember that when he turns tables over uh, in the temple, you'll find this in John 2, among other places, um, that he is angry with the traders. But actually, he's angry with the traders not just because they're trading, but because the people who are suffering from their trading are the poorest and the most determined to be um, faithful to God. And, and they have been led to believe that in order to be faithful, they need to go through all these processes that are costing them uh, their livelihoods. What's interesting about that is that 1,500 years later, at the beginning of the Reformation, one of the things that Martin Luther, the German theologian, who, who in lots of ways brings a climax to, to the Reformation in Europe, one of the things that he's most outraged by is the tendency the Catholic Church had at that time 
to encourage people to pay for, buy things that would make their um, afterlife better, you know, less time in purgatory if you buy this relic, that kind of thing. So it's the same kind of frustration and it, and it comes from a place of compassion. So Jesus is upset and compassionate and angry and those things all come together as he longs for his people to be free. Interestingly, as I've looked through this, there's a um, guy called uh, Carson who's written one of the commentaries that I've been looking at, and he says this. It's the unbelief of the people around Jesus that prompts his grief and his anger. And he says, anger without grief easily leads to a kind of self-righteous arrogance. A grief without anger is just sentiment and no purpose. Anyway, in the middle of all of this, just you know, a couple more points to note. In the middle of all this, Jesus has used his I am go-to again. So we remember that when he walked on water he, and he said, I've arrived, he may possibly have said, I, I am here, or it is I, it's me, I am. Um, and that he's previously said he's the bread of life, uh, among other things. He says, I am the true vine a bit later. But in this case, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. So identifies himself as being life bringing in a way that can overturn death. And this is before his own resurrection. Finally, from my points to note, we'll have this. Um, and I want to have a proper look at verses 24 and 25. So let's just pop that back up on the screen. So Jesus has asked Martha if um, she believes that Lazarus will rise again. And she says, yes, this is verse 24. Yes, he will rise again when everyone else rises at the last day. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection and life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. And what Jesus does there is take Martha's kind of theoretical understanding, her, her grasp of, of the concept, and say, this concept that you kind of get your head around, actually, that's me. So let's turn this thing from an abstract idea into a belief in a person. Let's go somewhere with it by investing it in a relationship. I think that's really important because when Jesus calls for faith, and this goes for us too and the world around us, what he's calling for us to do is, is not just to develop and hold on to a series of theoretical ideas that we say we can agree with. He's asking us to invest our thinking and believing and our hearts and our minds to invest them in him so in a relationship with a person and that's jesus we can only of course understand a lot of who that jesus is and what he has to tell us by reading the bible which is why the bible is so crucial to us as disciples the bible is also as, as well as being crucial is also crucially a pointer so it it points us to Jesus, that we might invest our faith in him. Right, that's all my points to note. Uh, let's have a quick look at one or two other things um, before we then come to questions and bring this session to a close. I think it's important that we consider what it is that we actually believe in. So Martha had this idea that she could get her head around. And it's that kind of thing I'm, I'm thinking of. What do we believe? Do we believe in a concept of love? I hope so, 
because love is really important for us to understand, to get our heads around. Love at its most uh, real, I suppose, is unconditional. And when we talk about how God shows us his grace, he gives things to us that we don't deserve, including life, including forgiveness, then it's his love for us that we are trusting in. We do believe in a concept of love. Maybe the thing we believe in is the promise of forgiveness. We know we have been and will continue to be forgiven as we put our faith in Jesus. We haven't got to earn it and we couldn't. We can't do enough right to outbalance the wrong that we do. Or to put it a slightly different way, we're, we're never going to be able to keep hitting the target of how Jesus means the world to work. We're going to keep missing that target and we'll miss it more than we hit it. So what we need is forgiveness and love. And these are concepts that are important. Do we perhaps believe in the rules and instruction of the Bible? Perhaps the thing that, that we cling to is that there are rules to keep and that there are instructions to follow and that those things give us a sense of certainty. Now, the reason I'm asking, do we believe in those things isn't because I think they're unimportant, but because actually, while they are important and us understanding them is crucial, they are not things for us to put our faith in. We are not to put our faith in the concept of love or the promise of forgiveness or the instructions of the Bible. We are to put our faith in Jesus and Jesus is a person. He is alive. He sends his Holy Spirit. He returns to the Father, sends his Holy Spirit, but he is still alive and he is the Jesus, the person that we put our faith in. John would say, I think, something like, what is the point in you seeing or hearing about all this stuff? What's the point in all those who were there telling the story, giving their testimony? If the furthest that we go is to say, well, I believe in the promises, I believe in the instructions, I believe in the concept. But I don't actually invest myself in who Jesus is. I am, if you're not further putting your belief, your faith in him, remember John is big on belief, what's the point? What's the point in understanding that he is alive, that he is the resurrection and the life, that he is the true vine, that he is the bread of life? What's the point in hearing and understanding those things if it doesn't go somewhere? We are people of the man. We are people of the man, Jesus. That is where we are called to be, where we're invited to be, with a person. And that means sometimes that we have to go, I'm going to read my Bible, I'm not going to put it down, I'm just going to dwell, I'm just going to sit, I'm just going to be present and invite Jesus to be present too. There's an old saying in, monastic tradition that your cell will teach you everything you need to know because there is an understanding that in our spiritual life silence and solitude are crucial as we build our relationship with jesus the cell by the way is just your little room when you're a monk it's not a it's not a like police cell it's just a little space a little room of your own go to your go to your cell go to your place where you just stop with jesus and that will teach you everything that you need okay each time that we're looking at these we're asking 
the same two questions at the end of our study, and they are, what kind of God do we learn about here? What kind of God do we have? And then, so what? What does that mean for us? So I, I want to suggest that perhaps uh, what kind of God do we see revealed here? I think, among other things, like you know, compassionate God, a, uh, a God of emotion, but also a God who has already given new life. You'll have noticed, by the way, that when Lazarus comes out of the grave, he is wrapped in his clothes, in his, in his grave clothes, um, including his head is wrapped too. He hasn't been able to take that off because he's wrapped up. And this is a tomb that's a cave, and it's a tomb that's a cave with a stone rolled across it. And okay, it's four days, not three days, but you can see quite a lot of parallels with Jesus' own um, death and his placing in that tomb. And then there's this, among others, there are several, but there's a key difference here that when Peter and John arrive at the tomb, they find the grave clothes have been left behind and folded neatly. Lazarus hasn't been able to do that. Anyway, that's a sidetrack. Um, so we believe in a God who has already given new life. It's not that we're waiting for it to happen, that new life is already given. So when Jesus says, I am the resurrection of life, he doesn't mean I will be the resurrection of life later. He says, I am now already. New life begins now. And that means that we are children of the resurrection. We have already been given new life. 2 Corinthians says, uh, if anybody is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. Uh, so what kind of God? The one who has already given new life. And so what? Well, then let's live in that new life. Let's not be waiting for our life with God to start later. Let's invest in it today and tomorrow. Let's make it an integral part of how we do each day. And let's involve those who also know Jesus in that life, because he hasn't called us to a resurrection life by ourselves, solo, just us and him. He's called us to a resurrection life that involves this community. Let's pray, and then we're going to ask three questions. Lord, would you show us what new life means in our circumstances? Would you help us to allow your new life to feed into who we are and bubble up inside us? Might we, we pray that we would experience the joy of your life in us. Not so that we squeeze out the hard things, not so that we can pretend the bad stuff doesn't happen, but so that we can recognise that alongside those challenges, your resurrection life is already active in us and those who know you. Amen. Right then, three questions. Number one, do you believe in life after death or before death? When do you think resurrection life kicks in? Or if you think maybe that question's already been answered, what does resurrection life look like in your day-to-day -day existence? Question two, how do we guard against being people of the concept or people of the book or people of the idea or the theory? It's not that those things aren't important, but we're not called to be people of theory. We're called to be people of Jesus. So how do we guard against being people of theory, people of the book, people of the concept? 
Question three. Jesus got angry and that anger was born out of compassion uh, and a kind of sense of disappointment and a realisation of what the world was like. So the question is this, what makes you angry? What are the things where you find that your compassion comes in and your sense of injustice comes in at the same time? What makes you angry like that? Thank you for being with us for this uh, seventh sign. And there are seven signs, unless you consider that there might be a bonus one. And there are those commentators who think that actually the eighth sign is important in several different ways. So, although we've now done our seventh sign, we are going to have a bonus episode next time and look at an eighth. I look forward to seeing you then. Take care.